Hello, welcome to Warwick Podcasts. I'm Sean Owen and I'm here today with Stephen Gundel from the Department of Film and Television Studies at Warwick University. Stephen has recently published his History of Glamour and uh, we're here at the British Library in London to talk about his new book. So, first of all, glamour is a surprisingly elusive uh, concept. It's very hard to describe. So, how would you describe it? I think uh, glamour is a word that is very widely used. It's often um, deployed on the covers of magazines, for example. Um, But its meaning seems to sort of slip away. You know, what is it? It's got a sparkle. It's got a drama to it. But but when you actually try to grab hold of it, it, it sort of slips through your fingers. And I think even if you look at dictionary definitions, um, even the etymology of the word isn't absolutely clear. And it just tends to mean something spectacular and sparkly and glittery that seduces the eye, that, that sort of provokes envy and desire. And I think when I was writing this book, I mean, what, what I tried to do was to work out a definition that when it would enable me then to look at the history of glamour. So the definition that I came up with was that glamour is the projection of a seductive and alluring image which rests on a series of values and those values include wealth, beauty, sex appeal, dynamism, celebrity, movement and leisure. And um, and in your book you pinpoint the origins of glamour as you define it from uh, Napoleon's regime. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well I think um, because if, if you look at the way glamour is used often there are two ideas of where it comes from. One is that it's timeless that you can trace it even back to the you know the pharaohs in ancient Egypt or, or, or the uh, Renaissance princes or, or even to Louis the Fourteenth. The other idea is that it's something much more recent. That it begins with Hollywood cinema. You know, I think still, if people think you know who who are the great icons of glamour, they probably think of Marilyn Monroe or or Marlena Dietrich, uh, people like this. What what I uh, tried to argue is that glamour is a feature of modern society, of a flexible, economically dynamic, fundamentally consumerist society in which people have a possibility of defining themselves. I mean, I think glamour it doesn't always have to find itself in a democratic context, but a sense of a, a, a dynamic and tendentially democratic society is very important. Now, Napoleon was a self-invented man. Yes, he became emperor of the French, but but you know he came from nowhere. He was a sort of minor nobility, certainly, but from the backwaters of Corsica. Uh, so he was certainly not a hereditary monarch. He was somebody who created an empire, created new rituals, embraced the fabulousness of the colours and the jewels and the riches that had been previously associated with and showed, in effect, that anybody could do this. You mentioned again in your book that a lot of glamour also originated from poets such as Walter Scott and also the lifestyles of the writers themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think the point about glamour is that it involves us, it involves a public Um, whereas, say, the magnificence of the royal courts is something that was very much top-down. It was meant to induce awe uh, and and deference, not envy and desire. And I think that's the the bit about glamour which connects up with, with consumerism. It may be associated with a handful of people, but we all feel that it somehow belongs to us and we can get a bit of it. Now, uh, 
today perhaps we're used to thinking of glamour mainly in terms of images, but uh, in the early days the imagination was also very important and it was writers like Walter Scott who, who didn't actually lead a particularly glamorous life himself. He built his own castle up in Scotland <laughs> on, the, uh, on the back of his earnings but fundamentally created this fantastic world. Um, you know his best known novel of course is Ivanhoe which sort of recreates a, a, a fabulous and sparkly Middle Ages for a mass readership and those novels like Ivanhoe and the others they're absolutely full of material descriptions of interiors of clothes of jewels and their visual effects somebody like Byron is uh, important uh, of course a contemporary of Walter Scott because he actually did live a glamorous life I mean he didn't just write he didn't just uh, become a mass author who people found imaginative and suggestive but he presented himself as the bearer of an enviable lifestyle. And, and it wasn't just the lifestyle, it was the story, it was uh, the rags to riches almost. You have um, members of the aristocracy who aren't glamorous by a long shot and yet you've got people who've risen through the ranks and that adds to the glamour. Well, I think, I know people you know, disagree over this and um, some people have taken issue with me over the question of whether aristocrats are glamorous or not. I tend to say, no, glamorous is, is about self-made people, but many aristocrats enter into a public realm and perhaps embrace some of the traits of modern celebrities, and in that respect they can become glamorous. I think, for example, royals are almost never glamorous, precisely because they belong to a, a tradition that is more than glamorous, if you like. It's more splendid, more institutional. But... If you look at Princess Diana, who often would be referred to and described as glamorous, she is somebody who stepped outside the traditional frame of royalty and positioned herself as a bearer of fashion, of celebrity, of beauty, and so on. And in that respect, I mean, she became a sort of role model and, and a figure of glamour. Absolutely. Um, to move on um, and to talk about Hollywood, because I think if you say glamour, you think Hollywood. The Hollywood industry itself is, is based on um, immigrants from Europe after the Second World War. Well, I think Hollywood, of course, was known uh, during its heyday, which is between the 1930s and 1950s, let's say, as the dream factory. And that, of course, is because it supplied dreams to masses of people who watched the film products in the dark uh, during the years of the Depression and the war, but also because it had this capacity to turn apparently ordinary, rather nondescript people who maybe had some special quality into fabulous, alluring icons. Um, you know, we think today of be it Marilyn Monroe or Marlene Dietrich or Greta Garbo uh, as being special, almost unique, but of course they weren't really because they were fashioned and created by the big studios, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Paramount in particular, or, or, or 20th Century Fox. And these took people, like Marilyn Monroe, who was, you know, came from very humble origins, provincial United States, and changed her appearance, changed her way of being, and inserted her in, in superb context where she became the Marilyn Monroe that we know and whose image is still with us today. In your book you quote Andy Warhol, which is a rather fabulous quote, saying that uh, Monroe's lipstick lips were not kissable, rather they were very photographable. Well, I think this is right. I mean, I, I haven't actually met very many film stars, but I have seen one or two in the flesh. And it must be said, they're often a bit odd-looking when you see them. You know, they're often smaller 
uh, shorter than you imagine. Uh, they often have quite large heads, um, and in particular a large forehead. Now this sort of physical configuration say, can look a bit strange in the flesh but it comes over very well on the screen and I think that's that's sort of one of the points behind what Andy Warhol was trying to say that that the sort of qualities that create a fabulous screen image are not necessarily those which create a person who might draw our eye in real life. Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, uh, you mentioned how um, the photographers are really, especially with regards to Hollywood, the unsung heroes of creating this illusion and this glamour. Well, the, the, the studio photographers, um, that's to say the people who took the still photographs, which were then used for publicity purposes, didn't enjoy prestige. Uh, their names are quite well known today and a lot of uh, books collecting their um, works have been published. But at the time they were just hack employees of the big studios. But they did have the conviction that they could confer glamour on anybody. George Hurrell, for example, said that glamour fundamentally in his view was a bedroom look. And all you needed was to uh, take somebody, typically a woman, but also m male actors, um, get them to adopt a dreamy look, uh, dress them in shiny fabrics, use shadow uh, to create a, a highly seductive image which could then uh, go over with the public. Do you think that this was a point where glamour and sex, really, that relationship became cemented to the public? Or was it not so blatant before then? Well, I think the point about glamour is um, it combines high and low visual appeals. So it draws, for example, on the use of colour and uh, visual um, complexity of certainly monarchy and also to some extent the church and the military. But it also, in order to reach a mass audience, I think draws on theatre, it draws on the street, and it draws on the world of prostitution. And I think it's the mix of high and low, of class and vulgarity, or sleaze, that makes glamour so fascinating. You know, there are lots of paradoxes at the core of glamour, but I think class and sleaze is, is the fundamental one. You know, so, in other words, if, if somebody is just elegant or stylish, then they're often not glamorous. They're, they're missing that sort of that touch of, 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 of popularity, of, um, uh, of down-to-earth vulgarity, which makes some of the popular entertainers much more glamorous. Um, talking about vulgarity, do you think that contemporary glamour, and by that I mean reality TV, do you think that it's gone a little bit too much on the vulgar side of things? Let's be clear what we're talking about. I think uh, certainly the development of the mass media had a f huge effect on the way glamour was presented and above all to the number of people it was presented to. Every time a new mass medium has come along, some people have said, uh, this will kill glamour. For example, the arrival of television, people said, no, no, that's the end of glamour. The great Hollywood stars, there'll be no more. They'll be displaced by uh, these TV people. And I think the fragmentation and diversification of media in recent years has given rise to similar views. But I didn't think glamour always repositions itself. I don't think reality TV people are glamorous. If you, if you look at the hit list I started with, uh, wealth, uh, beauty, sex appeal, movement, dynamism and so on. Well, okay, they may have beauty, they certainly have temporary celebrity, but they don't normally have wealth or a particularly enviable lifestyle. Mm. I would say it's the fashion industry today, rather than uh, 
the, uh, the cinema or television which manipulates glamorous imagery. I mean, the fashion model is very much a glamorous figure today because they almost never speak. So there's an element of mystery. They're still removed. They're distant. We can exercise our dreams and, and envy them in a way that we obviously don't of reality TV stars. <laughs> well, we absolutely don't. <laughs> um, Warhol was famously quoted as saying that in the future everybody will be world famous for 15 minutes and this has pretty much come true in a lot of ways but I think what you're saying yeah I, I agree it's, it's not necessarily glamorous they, they're just exposed to the public a lot and there is a big difference with that. I mean I, t I tend to think if we if we look at the people who are famous for very brief periods let's not think of them as being the stars let's think of them as the public right now if we if we take that point of view these are members of the public who are buying into glamour who who get a brief taste of it then i think we can understand it much better because the big stars are still there of course i mean you know, the older ones in particular, say Sophia Loren or Joan Collins, these are people who have a history and a heritage of glamour that they draw on for a performance that continues down to today. The, the, the Hollywood movie stars of today, of course, we don't see them every day. Maybe they come out with a film once every couple of years, uh, and at that point they do magazine interviews and so on. Otherwise we see them at um, Oscar night and uh, one or two select occasions. You know, they're still uh, a bit remote, even though they're much more down-to-earth and ordinary than they were 50 years ago. But I think the, the point about the people who get a break on, on TV or, or who are constantly present in the weekly gossip magazines, these are people who are enjoying a, a flavour of the glamour and the rest of us maybe can read about them and then throw the magazine away. And finally, just to talk about the fashion industry. Um, the, the fashion industry does put over a, a, a kind of stylized image of, of what a lot of people attain to have. Do you think it's fair to say that that line between realising that it is just an illusion and actually trying to get as physically like that image as humanly possible. I think there is a narrative of tragedy that is woven into the history of glamour. There are lots of people who've overreached themselves or who have sacrificed perhaps their humanity or their health in order to try and realise the illusion that is glamour. I think we must appreciate glamour is images, they're man-made images. Glamour is not a property that belongs to people, it's not charisma. And uh, certainly today, uh, like, like in the past, there are people who, who put too much into the effort to realise a seductive exterior. But I think most of us, to be honest, have a more detached view. And I think uh, Andy Warhol, I mean, is, is, is somebody who played with glamour. He introduced that element of irony that we can see in quite a lot of the performers today. I mean, the most obvious one, of course, is Madonna, who adopts and then discards guises. I mean, she draws on the whole repertoire of glamour and simply plays with it, acts out different roles uh, as, as she pleases. And I think she offers a, a healthier lesson in the way that if, if, if we want to um, engage with glamour, then let's just think of it as something you know we can do with a bit of ourselves or at particular moments and let, let it not touch our humanity. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's fun. It is, exactly. And I think that's exactly the way to regard it. I mean, it, it does have important implications in the function of consumption and so on. But, but, you know, it's also amusement. It's also escapism to some extent and above all fun. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure.